if I introduce myself. I'm JD, one of the pastors here at Mill City. Uh, before I began today, or begin today, I wanted to just mention many of you have asked about my dad, who uh, recently had a heart attack this fall and asked how he's doing. I had two questions even this morning. The answer is he's doing great. It was a little bit of a rough stretch for my extended family. My dad had a heart attack, and then two weeks later, uh, the church that he pastors was burned down by an arson on Halloween. So it's been a tumultuous year uh, for my family. And uh, by God's grace, I think our family had been planning a trip uh, to New Zealand to visit my little brother who's at school over there. And it was just an awesome opportunity uh, to get away, to rest, to relax together. And I could see the rejuvenation on my dad's face uh, come up as we were there. So that was an excellent time. Although I was a little bummed because my dad is a pretty athletic guy and he's always been able to keep up with me in sports and I thought maybe, I mean this is a twisted thought I know, but maybe I would get a leg up after this event. (laughs) But uh, I was proven wrong and I brought the video to show it. So this is a video of us doing something called canyoning and this is both of us being challenged to do a front flip and you just tell me who you think does the better one. That's my dad. Doing pretty good for one month out of, after a heart attack, huh? <laughs> Just in case you missed it, you know. That was a face full of water, so... Uh, I had a great time. It was rejuvenating for our family, but uh, he still got me on the front flips. So uh, I don't know if you've uh, done any travel, but sometimes when I travel, I like to sort of completely unplug and get away from it all, if you will. And I tried to do that as best I could on this trip, just to be with my family a bit. And then always after the trips, you come back and sort of uh, catch back up with the news, catch back up with what's going on in your community and the world. And I have to say, uh, catching back up was a little hard. Uh, All of the things that have been happening in our nation, even here in our community, uh, catching back up on the stories from this community and even uh, from uh, what's going on in our country. Um, And I did that in anticipation to preach about peace this morning. And I couldn't help but think it's been a pretty unpeaceful atmosphere as we anticipate Christmas. I don't know if you've felt that, not only on a national level or here in the Minneapolis community, but maybe even in your own life as you're anticipating Christmas, as you're anticipating being with family and friends, peace is not the adjective you would use to describe what you're anticipating. So the question I have this morning is, what does peace look like for us this Christmas? What does God, the gospel, Uh, have to say about peace coming and being among us this Christmas. And to do that, we're going to go back to the Christmas story like we've already read this morning. I think they did an excellent job reading it. We're going to read uh, Luke 2, verses 1, believe through 14. And we're going to listen again with fresh ears about uh, thinking about what's going on around us, thinking about what we're anticipating in Christmas time, being with our families and friends, and see what God would have to speak to us this morning. So it'll be up on the screen, or you can turn to it in your text, but we're going to read Luke 2, 
1 through 15. And it reads like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that, was, that took place under uh, a while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who uh, was pledged to be married to him, and, he was, and, and was expecting a child. While they were there, a, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, uh, her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Imagine what this would be like. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Makes sense. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Some of you might remember that, uh, that uh, passage from the Peanuts movie. I think it's probably the most familiar use of it outside of this context. I remember that uh, passage because my grandparents always read this passage before we open presents. So as I was a little kid, I always thought this was the longest passage ever. And right off the get-go, I'm like, why are they talking about the Roman Empire? Let's get to the Jesus being born part so I can open my Tonka toys. That's what I was thinking. But as we approach this as adults, as we think about what this event means, I think we often skip, o- skip over the first part, the context that Luke uh, gives to this miraculous story. And that is a census. And we often forget that Jesus enters into a tumultuous situation of nations a really unstable time in Israel where they're being occupied by the Roman government. And this is what Jesus enters into. And another uh, thing that we might often skip over or miss in this passage is there's what scholars sometimes call a scriptural echo in what the angel's pronouncement is. A scriptural echo is something that's not like a blatant quote of an Old Testament scripture, but a clear allusion to an Old Testament scripture. And this one in verse 10 is a pretty clear allusion to Isaiah 9-6 that reads this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of his greatness and his government, or of the gr- greatness of his government there will be no end, and Peace will reign forever 
He will reign in the house and David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing and upholding justice and righteousness from that time forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So the early readers of this story, the first people who heard it when Luke wrote it down and the people who were there and then when the angel was making that pronouncement clearly heard in the background as they were making that pronouncement, Isaiah 9, 6. And this passage was so instrumental in the history leading up to Jesus' birth. For 400 years, people had been waiting for this promise to take place. And you can imagine over 400 years, there had been some thoughts developed about what would happen when it took place. There was some arguments, some perspectives about the, how the Prince of Peace would actually bring peace. So when the angels use words like Messiah and Lord, those were loaded terms. And people had very clear perceptions about how those sorts of things were supposed to take place and how peace was supposed to be accomplished. The best I can descri- describe it to you is there was two camps that were essentially formed. There was what I might call the attack camp or the camp who wanted war. And a group that was very much at the center of this perspective was the zealots in that time. The zealots wanted to forcefully overthrow the Roman government in their, uh, their town, and they wanted to take to the fight right to Rome and take back their land. On the other end of things, you might think of the escapists, or the people who wanted to withdraw from the culture around them. And this might be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, another group that thought this. And they thought they would pursue peace through like holy living, legalism, and separating themselves from the culture that was around them. And so there was very entrenched, very distinct thinking that the Messiah would come and do one of those things. Either draw the people out to escape from the culture around them or attack the culture that was overpowering and impressing them. And so Jesus, when he comes on the scene, all these expectations are thrown on him. And so Jesus spends his whole life paving the way of what it means for him to actually make peace. So with these perceptions in the air, it it begs the question, what does it actually look like for Jesus to make peace? Well, he starts off wrong in a lot of people's perception. To come as a lowly uh, constructor's son from a podunk place like uh, Bethlehem or uh, uh, Galilee, which is basically, uh, sorry if I offend people here because I'm from a small town, but like the Brainerd of Israel. Not royalty. He comes humble in a manger, doesn't come with a parade. When this man is assembling the people who will be closest to him, it's really interesting that he chooses. who he chooses. If you look at his disciples, he chooses a zealot, Simon the Zealot, it says, someone who is convinced that peace will come through attack and violence. He puts him close to him. He also puts a tax collector, someone who's used to work very closely with the Roman government. It's like this team of rivals that Jesus assembles. That is not what people are expecting peace to be brought about like or didn't expect that to happen. And then Jesus does all these crazy things, like this episode where he goes and visits this, uh, this woman at the well who is not a Jew. A, a Jewish leader, a rabbi, should not be 
next to someone or talking with someone who is not a Jew, especially at a well. And this woman's got a past, and he enters into uh, her, her space and starts asking her questions and welcomes her into the faith and invites her to believe in God. And people are like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be making peace. You're supposed to be fulfilling these expectations. He does crazy things, like asks Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus to come down from the tree and host a party for him to go to dinner to his at his house, when Zacchaeus has taken everyone's money, all the Israelites, and is a symbol of a co-conspirator with the people who are oppressing him. Here's a guy who's supposed to make peace, and he's having dinner with the enemy. And then ultimately, Jesus' story climaxes in this event, this Passion Week, where he goes into Jerusalem, and the people who are hopeful about him actually being the Prince of Peace, being the Messiah, the one who would bring peace, are ready, like, here we go. Here's going to be the uprising. Here's going to be the overtaking of the government. Here's where it happens. And Jesus ends up dying on a cross. See, instead of escape and attack, Jesus repeatedly chooses inclusion and suffering in this process of peacemaking. One of our leadership team members, Tim Herzog, has done a lot of work uh, in training for peacemaking that's modeled off of Jesus' life. And he's developed a process for our community for peacemaking, for interpersonal peacemaking, but also a, a, um, a way in which we as a community can be peacemakers and he shared uh, uh, something with our covenant members last week that I thought was really great. And he, this uh, is something from a book called Peacemakers by Ken Sandy, which I highly recommend to you as your associate pastor of training as a resource. Uh, this will be uh, in the resource center at uh, the Commons. And if you're like me and you have a long book list, I brought along this brochure that Tim gave us that is basically the book in four pages. So... If this is more your book style reading, these are available in the back. But let me show you a tool that they uh, use to explain Jesus' style of peacemaking. And I've already alluded to it a little bit. If you could put that up on the screen, Adam. They call this the slippery slope of conflict. Whenever there's tension in our lives, whenever there's conflict in our lives, we have the tendency to slip towards one of these extremes. And you've already seen this as I've explained the atmosphere of Jesus' birth. There's people who want to escape from the conflict to say the best way to pursue peace is just to remove yourself from the situation. And rightfully so, that's safe sometimes when the situation is dangerous, but there's always a hope for reconciliation, moving back into a relationship. Now on the other extreme, there's this tendency within, within us in conflict, in tension, when things are tense around us in our community, to attack, either with our words or physically. And this was very much the desire of people in Jesus' day to, to take uh, the government back. And what we see Jesus choose continually is to move towards the chaos in the world around him and make peace. To not choose one or the other to attack or escape the situation, but he moves towards the situation of chaos and makes peace. It's very clear from Jesus' life, he has a deep conviction that God's presence makes peace. And it's Jesus' pattern in life to take time, sometimes every morning or before he steps into a situation that's tense, to withdraw, to be, a part, uh, to be in God's presence, in his peaceful presence, and then step into the chaos 
and participate with what God is doing to make peace. What I want to say to you this morning is if God is with us, if God is the with us God and we are the with God people, he is always going to be challenging us to move towards situations of chaos and tension to participate with him to make peace. One way of uh, understanding how peace can be made a little bit better, I want to do this morning, is just share a few stories from people I've seen and from my own life where I've seen them uh, echo, in a way, uh, Jesus' own life of stepping into chaos, stepping into tense situations, and trusting God for peace. One of them is uh, a neighbor of mine. I used to live in North Minneapolis, and we shared the alley together. His name is Mark Jensen. And when I came back, I uh, got to uh, read some of the blogs he's been writing. He felt as a neighbor in North Minneapolis that it was very important for him in solidarity with his neighbors to go to the Black Lights Lives Matter uh, protest and, and be present there. And he said one of the reasons he did it was, one, for solidarity with his neighbors, but two, because Jesus was always entering into those spaces of chaos like that. And he said, I didn't necessarily agree with everything that was be putting forth or the perspectives of everyone there, but it was very important for me to be there and be present. And I really encourage you to find his blog and, and, and look at the stories that emerge from him just being faithful to step into what was happening right in his backyard, right in his neighborhood, and be present and pray for peace. There were several pl places when he was there where he got to pray with people, mediate conflict in the moment, and bring peace in that tumultuous situation. I think what Mark understood is that Jesus is always moving towards chaos to bring peace. And he didn't really understand what the objective was. He didn't really understand what would happen if he did that. But he found that God was making peace there. Another thing I've done uh, this past week when I came back and I'd heard of um, all the things being said uh, about Muslims and even in my own community, or even here in Northeast, uh, stories of some harassment on the street uh, as people were just walking down the street. I, I felt God was asking me to make a connection with the Islamic Cultural Center down the street from where I live. And so uh, one day when I couldn't avoid God's calling anymore in the office, I said, I'm going to go visit the Islamic Cultural Center, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm just going to uh, offer uh, my concern in, as a neighbor and as a pastor in this community. And then Christian Ann and Pastor Stephanie caught wind of that, and they're like, we're coming too. We're doing it. So we all went, and I was super nervous. I didn't know what I was going to say. We all went on a Thursday afternoon, knocked on the door, came in, and we just... I just started to say, I, I'm a pastor here in this community, and I'm a neighbor of yours. I wanted to come in and express my concern if you've been experiencing any harassment and let you know that we as a community and I as a person, as your neighbor, care about you and what's happening. And we weren't able to meet with anyone there, but we were able to sit with them and talk with them. And they, uh, they had told us that they were receiving uh, some nasty phone calls and things like that. One of the things they did do was give me the imam's card Later that afternoon, I was like, I should give him a call. So I gave him a call super nervously, gave him a call. He said hello, and then I, like, my nerves took over, and I started like, explaining who I was and said like five different sentences, and then there was this pause, and he's like, I don't speak very good English. I'm going to give the phone to my brother. And I'm like, oh, man, 
screwed it up. But his brother was right next to him, spoke very good English. I was able to offer uh, my concern, the same things that I had said. And then there was this long pause on the other end of the phone. And his brother just said, wow, I'll tell him right away. And then he translated. And the imam gave me contact information for the manager of the Islamic Cultural Center and encouraged me to make a connection with him, which I'll do this week to continue the conversation. And I, I don't know what that means yet. I don't know what God is doing there. I just felt this sense that when Jesus came to earth, he stepped into chaos, and God made peace through that process. And I wanted to be a part of it. I mentioned earlier that uh, my fa- the church my father pastored uh, experienced an arson fire on Halloween. For me, that was very tough. I was my home congregation, had lots of memories there. I described it uh, to many people who were close to me that it was as if someone had burned a family album in front of me because of all the memories that were, uh, that were there. And I was mad. I was very angry at this person for a while, particularly because of my dad's struggles and I know the leadership challenges that he's walking into and I know the frailty of his heart now. And I was angry. And this week and the weeks leading up to it, I've really sensed that God is asking me to visit this person in prison. And so when I was up there this weekend, I went to the jail, or I didn't go to the jail, but I was intending to go to the jail to visit him. And then I learned that uh, they do it by Skype now, and you have to visit them, which I didn't know. First of all, I called the wrong jail, and I was like, okay, this is a mess. But I kept leaning into it, and now I have a visitation scheduled with this man who burnt down the church that I was so, uh, that I loved so much and caused so, so much uh, pain when he did it. I don't know how that conversation is going to go. I just know that God leads us as his people into situations of tension and conflict to make peace. I'm not quite sure yet. I haven't figured it out what peace looks like with this individual, but I want to be present. Because I feel like when God's spirit is leading us as a congregation and as individuals, he leads us into places of conflict and tension and creates peace. One more ordinary example uh, is many of you probably have families like mine where there's some disagreement politically. And there may be some heated conversation over the holidays. Uh, You're smiling because those people are sitting around you, maybe. Uh, And it's always tense, and there's disagreement. And so one of the things that Christian Ann and I have done is really intentionally prayed before we're a part of those situations. And we've already had one family gathering, and we can really tell the difference when we get our heart in the right place and just pray, God, as we go in this situation of potential tension, will you bring peace? And will you give us the patience to see what you're doing and respond to that? And I would offer that as a really simple thing we can do even next week as we participate in our family functions. See, the truth is this world needs the good news of peace in this time. The truth is when Jesus came, there was a lot of expectations about how peace would come, and he would always surprise people in the ways that he pursued it in entering into spaces of chaos and making peace. And what it means for us to be followers of Jesus is to do the same thing, to have the courage to step into places that are tense, that have conflict, and listen to God's Spirit's leadership and make peace. As I said earlier, one of the rhythms of Jesus' life 
was to find silence before he entered into spaces of chaos. And so to close this morning with that challenge of entering into those spaces in our own life, I want to create a space of silence before we enter into any situation that God calls us to next week. For some of you, this might be the only silence that you truly experience in the next few weeks, as it can be pretty chaotic. What I want this time to be for you is just a time for you to sit in God's presence and ask for his leadership. Maybe a relationship will come up there's, where there's tension and conflict, and you'll hear God's leadership to move towards that relationship in a way that makes sense. Or maybe in the silence, you'll have an opportunity to pray for our community in our country in its time of heated tension. I hope that this space is fruitful for you. So in the next few moments here, we're going to give it about a minute to a minute and a half. And we're going to practice silence. It's a, it's a faith step, trusting God to create peace in your own heart before you step into situations of conflict. So would you embrace this time with me for about a minute and a half while of silence? And we'll come close our service and worship.